Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Trying to get Matt Swish on this podcast for a long time. We recorded this twice. Both times the audio got screwed up. It became a running joke that maybe we are uh, Matt Damon and Jimmy Kimmel. Matt Swish, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Very good. And you? How is everything? I'm good. I'm good. You are locked in in Dubai now. You are working on running some of Upcode Live conferences. Uh, but I want to bring you on the podcast to talk about your life insecurity. You've uh, had a really, really interesting history. And you bring a perspective from France that is not very well known in cybersecurity. Can you go all the way back to your early days and get help me understand what were your influences and at what point you realized that, okay, this technical security thing could be interesting for me? Yeah, good question. So initially, like you said, the scene in France and in Europe is very different than uh, in the US. Uh, 15 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago, like it was very rare for people to actually work in uh, security. Uh, I mean, it was already uh, in, in the US, but in France even more because the number of like tech companies is not as high as uh, in the US. That's why a lot of people uh, actually move to the US to work for like tech companies there. Uh, now it's a bit more different because there is more options and you even have companies like Google in Zurich where uh, a lot of uh, people are actually moving uh, to instead of having to move to Mountain View or to Seattle, right? Uh, but initially, most of people who started in security, including myself, uh, at least for the reverse engineering scene, uh, we mainly come from a reverse engineering background because of the cracking scene. So a lot of people uh, were doing cracking uh, in France. This explains why there is so many reverse engineering friends now. Um, and why was why why was cracking so prevalent there? Was that specific some something unique there at the time? It's it's a good question. Uh, well, by that time I arrived, so because uh, uh, you know I arrived in the early two thousand, so a lot of French people were already there. A lot of forums were there for cracking, uh, so a lot of them were already in French, and. Uh, so I arrived after the initial wave of people, but uh, to say like why it initially started, uh, why people were more interested uh, in, in cracking uh, more than uh, the US, uh, it's a good question. I will not be able to answer that, uh, but that always has been like very, uh, very popular, especially, I mean, one potential explanation, you know, is because uh, there is a lot of like engineering school in France where uh, math is very, uh, uh, very important. And even if you look at the crack me challenges that were running around, a lot of them would be like really uh, heavy uh, when it comes to uh, cryptography. And that's something that kind of like uh, got the attention of a lot of people. Was there a language barrier? I mean, always. So getting think, into technology, computer security, getting into hacking, was there a language barrier on your side? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of content from France has been uh, all in French for a very long time, right? A lot of the actual uh, people doing really good content would only write uh, in French. So that was definitely uh, something that was present. And for a long time, you did not really see like many like French presenters uh, at conferences, uh, mainly because of the language barrier. Uh, that became right. uh, very different like over the past 10 years. But that was definitely an issue uh, 15 years ago uh, because you not see like uh, many like uh, French people like uh, speaking abroad for uh, conference uh, but I guess it was probably like not only like in France that would probably like uh, be like that with a lot of countries yeah I spoke to uh, Ivan Arce out of 
Buenos Aires, Argentina, and he, he, his, you know, his early years go way back, much, much earlier than you and I. But, you know, the language barrier there was like, even the documentation of the technologies they were trying to reverse or trying to do pen testing on the doc- documentation may have been in a different language. And that presented a, a hiccup and a barrier that was different to others. Uh, yeah, well, a lot of those uh, cracking like uh, forums and cracking tutorials uh, we had access to uh, back then, uh, a lot of them would be in French. Uh, there is some that would still be in English, obviously, uh, because of uh, a lot of the disassemblers, a lot of the tools uh, being uh, made by uh, other authors. But uh, yeah, uh, still a lot of the materials and like CrackMe solutions would still be uh, in French. And then you had like forums like CrackMe.de, where like it would be mostly in English anyway. So what, something that really fascinates me is like, what did the hacking security reversing scene look like at the time that folks were coming up and getting finding influences and finding folks to look up to or to say, you know what, this can actually be a career. Paint a picture for me about uh, like the post-cracking scene morphing into uh, a hobby, into something more serious, more career-related. What did that scene look like at the time? Who were the folks that were around? Were there not some names that we would recognize today? Well, it's a, it's a good question. When did it actually become a, a job, you know, like uh, I would say... For you? Uh, well, for me, you know, like the thing is, uh, you know, you had like people like Kostya Korczynski uh, was one of the first people uh, who uh, knew back then who moved out of a, France. He was an exploit writer out of, uh, that ended up at Immunity, who is now at Microsoft, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, exact. So when he joined Immunity, you know, I remember I was like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Uh, like, uh, oh, did you move to the US, you know, like, uh, like oh, 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 things there, you know, like I remember asking him a lot of questions when I was speaking at uh, uh, PacSec in 2007 at the uh, Dragos Reuse conference. Uh, so he was one of the, uh, I mean, obviously, like there were also some other people, you know, like uh, Philippe Langlois when he started Qualys and moved to the US. That was, uh, that was before that. But Kostya is like the first person uh, who actually remembers who moved like and that I knew back then who moved uh, out of France uh, to go to the US it's yeah. funny that's the second time Kostya's name is called on this podcast in the last uh, month oh, uh, well. Dave Vitel was on this podcast talking about uh, folks uh, you know impressive folks who've moved on to do amazing important things in the industry and Kostya's name was one yeah a guy who moved from offense to defense very very seamlessly and it's just incredible yeah I mean it makes sense as a transition because if you don't really uh, understand how offense is working and if you don't really know like uh, reverse engineering really well uh, I mean even in the security scene you see a lot of uh, not, not gaps but uh, people with a really strong reverse engineering background and a good software development uh, background usually end up doing like some pretty good things because those are like really fundamental skills and from that you can like right. kind of like fork out and do like whatever you want uh, why did you decide to well not necessarily specialize but move into memory forensics as a, a, a an area of expertise for you uh, was that something you sought out for a specific reason uh, was it just something you stumbled on so the the way it started is uh, back in uh, 2007 when uh, I, I met Nicola Roof uh, was working for EADS uh, at that point. No, it's called the uh, Airbus. Uh, he, he brought me uh, as a summer internship to EADS uh, because I knew I was uh, like doing a lot of reverse engineering. And he was like, oh, actually, you should be looking at the uh, Windows hibernation file 
uh, in Windows. I was like, oh, what's the Windows hibernation file? Because I didn't even know that you could hibernate your, your machine and it would create uh, an image of uh, your RAM on disk. And that file would not be documented. It would be compressed. Uh, so no one actually uh, did anything around it. So that's why I ended up reversing Windows kernel uh, to get the file format and to be able to uncompress that file. Because back then, a lot of the... And I don't really know if it has changed that much in... Uh, in 10, 15 years, but a lot of the forensic people, you know, would just be using tools like NKs to just like parse strings. So that if something was compressed, uh, that's it, you know, they could not open it. So this was uh, this was pre-Airbus. You're there maybe as an internship, someone gave you a project and this Windows hibernation uh, research yeah. uh, became live and that was your introduction to it. Yeah, but basically. And then I realized there is a huge gap around like, uh, you know, forensic and incident response tools because a lot of uh, the, the people from that segment of uh, InfoSec didn't uh, knew how to write softwares. Uh, so they would know to script what, what, a bit. What was the scene around memory forensics at the time? I'm trying to paint the picture for the audience uh, about how, how someone like you gets your introduction into security and how you found your niche or what, how you found your specialization. Like, what was that trigger point for you? And what did, they, what did the memory forensics landscape look like at that time? Well, Jamie Butler uh, at that website. Ah, rootkit.com. Uh, root, yeah, exactly. So actually he published a lot of stuff uh, around this. Uh, I think he was still with HB Gary at that time. And HB Gary was doing some uh, work around that. And I think the volatility people were starting uh, around that time also. Uh, so that was pretty much the, the scene. Uh, and then security-wise, I don't know if you uh, remember like when Pedram had uh, OpenRC. I don't know if you have known that uh, website, but that's a community website. That I Pedram know that launched. website because I believe I believe Charlie Miller still has an OpenRC email address. So that those guys, <laughs> I, I I'm familiar with it. Uh, when did Moonsols come around? Do you remember Moonsols? Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm surprised you do remember them. Uh, yeah, it was just like some consulting uh, company that I did after because I worked for the Dutch Ministry of Justice after because I dropped out of high school and that's, uh, you know, they offered me and a what job. was Moonsaults? So after when I left, you know, I was like, okay, I'm just going to uh, go independent and I'm going to see to uh, how many conferences I can go and uh, if I can probably keep giving trainings and do some consulting uh, around. So that's basically what I was doing at that point. And uh, so it was mainly like a consulting uh, a firm uh, for security and I still had some tools around memory forensic which uh, I continued today with uh, with Kome. And you also made this uh, switch from reversing offensive security research uh, pen testing and consulting to the entrepreneur side. Talk a little bit about the early uh, beginnings of cloud volumes and what, what was that period of time like? Yeah so that was after like uh, Moonsaults. I was just doing some consulting and then uh, uh, when they uh, talked with Matt he, he was also like uh, tired of uh, doing security uh, with uh, Matt Conover uh, so shock in Wu uh, for, for those who are familiar with Wu and uh, so it's kind of how we uh, we started uh, around like uh, 
uh, cloud volumes. So like you said, it was not uh, security at all. It was just an application deployment solution. So we're just using virtual disk as a vehicle to deploy applications. So let's say if you wanted to deploy like Microsoft Office uh, for VDI infrastructure, uh, instead of having to install it for each uh, VDI machine, you would just install it once. That would be in a virtual disk uh, similar to a container uh, for Windows. And then you would just deploy it uh, by attaching it to a virtual machine and we would have an agent that would merge uh, the file system and the registry. So it's very similar to like like a Docker, uh, like a Windows version of Docker uh, from that right. aspect because you would use uh, virtual disks, so VMDK file or even VHD files and as a, a vehicle for your containers. And that became a functional business that you guys built and how, how long did that last? Uh, building up cloud volumes as a company? Uh, between three and four years. And uh, now it got rebranded uh, as VMware App Volumes. And uh, it's, okay. it's still around, uh, still still going strong. So that's uh, that's pretty cool, you know, like, because with security, you break a lot of things, you know, and even I'm sure if you talk with a lot of security researchers, and, and I'm sure a lot of the people you interviewed in your podcast, a, a lot of people end up like building companies or products and softwares. So I think when you stay like too much into like research, you kind of get frustrated. And you want to like right. uh, be able to build the product. You know that was one of the uh, you know it's a, it's a nice uh, accomplishment. You know when you know like you build the product and people are actually uh, using it. The first time I heard about you, I remember I was a journalist at the time, and you went to Microsoft Blue Hat, like one of the earlier ones. Was it the first first ever Blue Hat? I'm not sure, but no, definitely not the first. But maybe like the second or third or something. One of the early early ones when it was super internal. You had to be super bougie and fancy to get an invite. It was kind of. Uh, uh, how did you end up there? Uh, yeah, ba- back when Blue Hat was still prestigious. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> me too. But uh, actually, like, uh, it's one of the good things uh, about Microsoft. I mean, uh, you worked with Windows Snyder, so you, you, you know, like, uh, the people who were around uh, that time very well. But Microsoft was really good with security, like, uh, super early on, like, uh, to discuss uh, with security researchers, to invite them, to kind of, like... But if you look at other companies, you know, like, for instance, like, Zoom is only starting to build, like... Uh, like a significant security team uh, now after being public for like almost a year. If you look at companies like Apple, you know, they're not that friendly with researchers, you know, like, they, and they were doing that like more than 10 years ago. So from that aspect, I think like community-wise, I've been doing a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, but I'm curious, how, how did you end up uh, scoring an invite to Blue Hat? At that time, I published a tool uh, for Hyper-V that was uh, doing virtual machine introspection. So similar to like memory, like forensic in that aspect, but basically from the host, uh, you would be able to read the memory of the virtual machines that they saw that I published it and they invited me to to speak about it. What does the memory forensic space look like today versus when you started? And can you paint a picture of what that uh, the evolution of this space is like? What are the, the availability of tools today? Is it much easier for an enterprise to manage uh, capturing and analyzing memory post-incident? Um I mean, if you, you speak about like memory forensic per se, because I make a difference between memory analysis and memory forensic, like memory forensic is kind of a subset of like uh, DFIR. And if you look at the evolution of like uh, forensic and incident response over the past like 10, 15 years, I would not say that it has changed that much. Even if you look uh, over the past 10 years, there's a lot of focus on like uh, detection, EDR, and most of really large companies don't have a big incident response team and they will still like uh, outsource to like third party companies. So in terms of tooling, 
uh, it's still pretty weak, uh, even on Windows. And then if you look at other operating systems like Linux, uh, which is what everyone is using in the cloud uh, mostly, uh, the gap is like really, really significant. And uh, so for memory analysis, which is uh, usually what I say, like we, we do, uh, because there's more applications, you know, you can use that for like uh, virtual machine introspections. If you want to do like some threat hunting, uh, there is some potential good use cases, you know, that could be used for like uh, cloud providers for like, you know, uh, if you want to do assessment of VMs, there's still not much about it, you know, a lot of it, uh, I think it's still focused around like logs, even the queries for logs, you know, like the grammar is not very uh, complex, you know, what you can uh, do. So I would say it didn't change that much. Uh, there is probably more changes that happen for like application security. A lot of good stuff happened for like application security and, uh, you know, like uh, mitigations for operating system over the past like 10, 15 years. Uh, th that definitely change uh, detection, you know, with EDR and all those things. But for like response and uh, incident response, uh, I don't think it changed that much, you know. So I would assume it's probably going to change soon, especially now with the pandemic, you know, because there's more and more incidents. So we need better ways to be able to scale uh, incident response. Uh, so that's definitely like something I think which is going to change. And then with like cloud providers becoming more and more significant and you know, with everyone working remote, you know, like the way we think of infrastructure is going to change. We're going to need like better or like ways to like inspect uh, virtual machines and to be able to control them. And it's going to have to go like beyond like just like looking at logs and ingesting them in some like, you know, I don't want to name like companies, but you no know, ingesting logs and analyzing them. And, you know, we're going to be able to move towards like more complex like query languages to write like better playbooks for like hunting and detection but I haven't seen that uh, happening yet. Is there anything that excites you in the area of memory forensics research? Like the new applications, you know, like I was saying, like uh, for what I call like memory analysis, I think there's a lot of use cases because, you know, you can think of like pre-processing, you know, building like better playbooks and scalability, you know. If you look at servers now, like on, uh, and that's something that people tend to forget, you can have servers with few, ter like uh, up to like 12 terabytes of RAM uh, on AWS and Azure. Uh, which is insane, you know, if you think about it, like 10 years ago, like if you had like 16 gig of RAM, that was a lot. So imagine now, like you can have servers with like 12 terabytes of RAM. So from that aspect, uh, a lot of things I think are going to change because the size of like servers now is totally different than uh, 10, 15 years ago. And uh, mm -hmm. imagine what it's going to look like uh, in 10 years, because it's very hard to like have an idea of like how fast and how big like machines are going to be uh, in 10, 15 years. Uh, your career has spanned all kinds of really, really interesting stuff. You've also dabbled in some uh, nation-state malware research. You've done Black Hat and DEF CON presentations on the shadow brokers. You've done talks on memory forensics. You've been all over the place. In addition to, you know, doing some really fascinating things on the community building front, which is near and dear to my heart, and removing barriers and removing roadblocks. And the work you've done with UpCode, um, which is a conference series you've moved around into some really interesting places. What was, let's back up a bit and talk about Opcode. What is it? What was the original idea for it? And why was this important to you? So initially Opcode started uh, when I moved to Dubai. So uh, like uh, we were discussing before, uh, when we got acquired by VMware and I worked there, so I was living in San Francisco. I didn't really yeah, like the place Why would you leave San Francisco to move to Dubai anyway? <laughs> I mean, I think the 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 the, the right question would be: What would you? Uh, what would anyone move to San Francisco if they don't uh, have to? You know, 
uh, <laughs> and, and actually you see like but you know like one of the uh, theory uh, that I had back then you know which is uh, I think it's still like true and valid but it may be like longer than what I initially initially thought that we're gonna see like more innovation hubs uh, across the world for like innovation because for a long time like we were talking at the very beginning you know like uh, for a lot of uh, people like the only option was to move to the US work for a US company in France we didn't uh, really have many options in terms of like tech companies and if you look now you know it took like 10-15 years to change for Europe to have like uh, better options to have a more international scene and also like because you know, like uh, in, in France, you know, you had to be an uh, an engineer and then you become a manager. So it was a very linear uh, way to to have a career. Was like in the US, you could be like technical and still be like really important in the company. But it was too centralized to the US. It like a lot of brand trend uh, happened in technology uh, for people like moving to the US. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, and if continues you, to happen continues it, to be a significant problem, right? For, for people to get ahead and move ahead and have a career it, it is, and yeah. like pursue, uh, but pursue now if a you look, dream you have to try to get to the US, right? It is, but now I think like a lot of things have been changing over the past years, you know, like getting visas is harder, uh, getting a green card is harder. And if you don't family, uh, if your family does, does not live in the US, it's still quite far. Uh, so a lot of people also like lived in the US, moved back uh, to like... Uh, to Europe, and uh, we kind of start to see uh, this happening. Like London, for instance, for startups, uh, became like pretty fin- significant now. So it's a major. Give me some like, examples, player. and and there are there are examples of people building security companies and building companies and businesses around security research that is not entirely dependent on the U.S. Harun comes to mind, a mutual friend of ours. Harun Mir building it out of South Africa and building a successful business that doesn't require him being here is one small example, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Like a uh, very successful, uh, independent, really good product uh, has been in the industry for a long time. Uh, what are some uh, other examples of those that, that you're seeing around the place that, um, you know, doesn't necessarily, uh, uh, that, that, that signals this shift away from a complete dependence on having to move to? Yeah, uh, well... Also, like there is some like like local players, for instance, in France, there is like an EDR company, you know, called uh, Tetris. Uh, they don't have like VC in- investment, uh, but they are pretty big now. I think they're close to 100 people. So they've been like, doing pretty good. And then some people like start in Europe or like move to the US. Uh, and then you have like some other like startups, you know, like uh, happening in, in Singapore. But I think it happens in waves, you know, like first you would have like general tech companies. And then you would have more security companies around it because if you can have some like large companies, you know, like uh, some big Uber or like Airbnb, then it kind of creates an ecosystem uh, around it because they're going to try to hire like more local people. And also like what we right. start to see happening now is like uh, there is more and more like companies uh, being distributed. I forgot the name of the company, but uh, you know WordPress, right? Uh, which is used everywhere. Uh, the company is right. 1,000 employees and everyone is remote. Automatic, I think, is the name of like the mother company, right? Yeah, correct. Automatic with uh, double T because the founder is called Matt. Uh, Buffer.io, I think also. But there is more and more like companies with a distributed team uh, happening. So it's kind of like removing the barrier of like, okay, you have to live in the Bay Area 
and you have to commute to Mountain View every day uh, in the Caltrain. So that model right. is like moving away. And now even with the pandemic, we see that tech companies are not uh, are still affected, but not that much in terms of operation because they already have like the structure and the infrastructure uh, to have like remote employees, whereas like uh, more traditional businesses, like family businesses, like now they are struggling. Right. It's like, well, what's this like uh, Zoom thing, you know, like uh, what's this voice call, you know, and then uh, they don't really know how to use those tools. So and there's also some small there's also some small examples of the reverse migration as well. Like Mark Dowd, for instance, went back to Australia to create and launch Azimuth and create opportunities for folks in that region uh, instead of doing it here in the U.S. And and I could pick some other examples. And there's also the other interesting examples as as the economics shift, the talent out of uh, you know places like Portugal and Porto and Buenos Aires and comes super interesting and um, and, and and attractive. Yep. The Silicon Valley startup. So opportunities are now spreading far and wide much, much easier. Yeah, like, I mean, depending of where you live, but the, the quality of life can be definitely like superior to uh, to living uh, in, in the Bay Area. So that's one of the main reasons when I moved to Dubai, you know, I was like, well, it's more central, it's better for traveling. And potentially, you know, that could become a Singapore-like type of hub, you know, where, you know, it's kind of central, you know, it could become, uh, and it was already very international at that point. And since then, you know, like they had some big uh, uh, companies that, that did pretty well, you know, for instance, there's a company called uh, Souk that got acquired by uh, Amazon. Uh, and then there is like Karim. E-commerce e company, right? e-commerce company yeah uh, i think they got acquired for like 400 billion uh, that was the biggest acquisition like uh, a few years ago and then there is a uber a competitor called karim that was here they got acquired i think like one or two years ago by uh, uber for like between one to two billion dollars uh, so they they started to have like some big exits, uh, not nothing around enterprise software uh, yet, uh, but that definitely like shows that people are kind of like looking at other markets, especially U.S. companies, because at some point they have to think of like expanding. Uh, so the question is like, well, is everything going to be an expansion of U.S. companies? Or are those regions going to develop their own ecosystem? Which goes back right. to like your initial point of like some of the other countries, you know, for instance, uh, Kenya, I've been going there like a few times. There is a lot of talent there. Uh, there is a pretty big like talent pool and uh, people keep learning. Uh, last year, uh, I think it was Microsoft that announced uh, to invest in Nigeria and Kenya uh, for two development centers. Uh, because for a long time, India was kind of like the default choice for like outsourcing, like uh, for U.S. companies. And even like people were saying, well, India does not really innovate. It's just an outsourcing center. Uh, and if you look at now, like India is starting to have like some pretty good startups. And even for like outsourcing, they from that aspect, they were kind of like pioneer. Uh, but now we're going to uh, see like more options, I think. So it's kind of good to see and like what's happening and to enable like some of the communities there. That's why like uh, two years ago when, he, when we did the Upcode, we did a joint conference uh, with a local group called the Africa Hackon. And there is also another group of uh, uh, women there like uh, giving security workshops uh, that we also partner with uh, called She Hacks, you know, which is also very active. Uh, Shout out to Laura Titch, who who is very active um, in that community. Yeah, on, uh, on the Discord. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that, that... Hey, listen, you've done you've done some amazing work. Even even just showcasing what is going on there in your own small way has been so significant, at least to me. And you know, part of this part of this upcode and your affinity for you know going through Africa in some of these underrepresented places, you actually ended up in Somalia. Tell me about that trip. You also had a story there where you met a guy or you met a, uh, some entrepreneurs there who was who were using blockchain for farming. Uh, two things. Talk a bit, a little bit about like wh- how on earth did you end up in Somalia? What's the tech scene like there? And like, was it like an energizing thing to see the kind of like really strange uh, use cases for some technologies that we sometimes dismiss or take for granted? Yeah, no, uh, so yeah, I went to Mogadishu uh, for a tech event because uh, so one of the things usually I do for uh, when I look at countries, I look if there's an existing like group of people, a community. And in one of my trip to Nairobi, like someone mentioned to me that uh, there is a, a hub uh, there called iRise uh, that I should look at because I just started in uh, Mogadishu. So uh, I reached out, I was like, oh, if you ever need like... Uh, know help with uh, you know like uh, some ideas or mentoring you know if you do, uh, do anything uh, let me know and actually they were uh, they, later on they organized uh, a tech conference so that's uh, when i went and uh, so in a lot of uh, those conflict affected countries uh, you don't really know what to expect usually when you go there and obviously like uh, security is quite tight uh, especially in mogadishu uh, and uh, but Going there was quite interesting because, like you said, there is actually like some tech startups going on. Uh, A lot of them uh, were... Wait, 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 wait. Slow down. Slow down a second. So our or or my, let me speak for myself, my vision or visibility of Mogadishu, Somalia is kind of framed by some, you know, a lot of the nonsense we see on CNN or uh, some mainstream video reporting that usually is very narrowly tied to some conflict and you usually see a guy with you know, rocket launcher on his arm. What is the what is the place like just for everyday life for folks there? And, you know, specifically for our peers, like, you know, technology-minded folks who are fascinated and excited about security. Is there like just an everyday normal life there? Paint the picture for me. Uh, well, I would, I would not say it's an everyday normal life, obviously, because it's still like a country like uh, heavily affected uh, by the conflict. You know, Al-Shabaab is very present on the uh, on the on uh, that uh, part of the Horn of Africa, uh, even like one of the group uh, I, I met there and you know, was in charge of like uh, you know helping uh, like child soldiers to uh, you know be uh, not, not rehabilitated but you know like to go back uh, to be de-radicalized. De- so this is definitely like uh, th- those things happening. But because those things are happening, does not mean that on the other side uh, people are not building things. It is also like. Uh, uh, in a lot of African countries, and especially in Somalia, uh, what they call the diaspora, uh, a lot of Somalians who like either grew up abroad or lived abroad, like in Sweden or in London, and then are moving back with the knowledge they have and they are helping their communities uh, locally. So, for instance, like building companies or creating like uh, co- community groups, uh, for instance, like uh, for de-radicalization and all those things. Or even like some people are not even diaspora, you know, like one of the group we uh, talked to uh, that was, uh, you know, training um, uh, girls to become uh, developers. Um, and uh, so 
even though like all those things are present and it's still like very difficult, uh, obviously like banking, telecommunications are very different. Uh, you still see like startups, you know, like uh, there is one that was doing transportation, kind of like uh, Uber, another one for food delivery. And uh, yeah, so like, and like you said, that other one where uh, obviously because the economy is different, you cannot really like just do a wire transfer to Somalia uh, that was using like cryptocurrencies to have like uh, foreign investors. He had a lot from Korea and China that would invest in some of his land. Uh, so as a way for like property ownership that he would use to develop his farm for like the animals. Uh, so they where where is this where is this security where is this sorry sorry where is this te technology education coming from in that part of the world is that a lot of it self taught is are there some companies investing in trying to educate uh, folks is or is it just you know just local community driven well security wise you know like from an application security infosec point of view like it's uh, it's non-existent because obviously like for infosec to exist and to appear and we've seen it like in the US and in Europe the technology ecosystem needs to reach uh, a certain maturity we even see it now with like companies like Zoom you know that became uh, more or less of a priority or uh, a thought after the IPO and everything so it's not usually like the, the first thing you think of and a lot of the uh, investment in that case would be like mainly like uh, local so this still no like a proper VC. Uh, but if you would look at uh, countries like Nigeria and uh, Kenya, which are like the two most uh, active countries in Africa uh, after like South Africa, you know, because South Africa is really, really well developed uh, from that aspect. Uh, they have their own VCs, they are more structured, you know, like they are, it's definitely like uh, more developed from that aspect. But like countries like Somalia, it's more like local uh, knowledge and people would be like, still need the knowledge to be like local uh, mobile applications or local websites. Uh, for instance, like today and for the next two days, I'm uh, mentoring remotely for a uh, hackathon uh, happening in Gaza in Palestine. Uh, so they have a lot of sponsors that's uh, done by a group called uh, Gaza Sky Geeks, uh, which is uh, managed by M uh, Mercy Corps. And uh, Google is one of the uh, founder of uh, Gaza Sky Geeks also. They've been around for a very long time. But same thing, it's a conflict affected places. And you still have like a lot of conflict affected, uh, conflict affected places. You have a, a large uh, population of the youth, which, uh, you know, and everyone wants to do something. So they want to learn things. They want to apply the knowledge. Uh, so like technology is pretty good for that and development too, because if you think about it, and that's something they've been doing pretty well uh, uh, in, in Gaza is how can you export services like we were talking about before, right? If everything becomes more distributed. So in the case of uh, Gaza Sky Geeks, they have a partnership with uh, Upwork where people can like kind of market uh, their, their skills and services. So it's kind of creating and boosting like the local economy, especially you know, when you cannot really like uh, import and export uh, freely. So there is a lot of like innovative ways happening like that. And that's pretty good for the youth because, you know, like uh, it can prevent like, you know, like ra radicalization, depression. You can help your family and your community. Then you can do like knowledge transfer. Uh, just like what we see, you know, at the scale of like InfoSec, you know, we have seen like InfoSec evolving, you know, like how people kind of like share their knowledge and started to collaborate and create opportunities. Uh, but for like, you know, like other like areas in technology, uh, 
and like different type of uh, communities and countries. So I think that's one of the uh, interesting aspects of, uh, you know, uh, learning about those places, you know, uh, because there's a lot to learn and each country is very different and each group may have different needs. Um, but yeah, that's the cool part about it. You know, it's, I mean, you guys are doing it in different ways, but I don't know if you listened to the Dave Vitel podcast um, where he talked about his participation in Project Uh, project grapple and trying to you know just go to the source of where action is happening and thinking small like uh, you know there's something there's a, there's a place that could use my help i'll just jump in and try to ap apply some resources and use my help and i see a lot of the, the similarities between what he's doing on, on that scale with what you're doing on your scale which is like i'm just one guy but i can go to a place like somalia and even if the contribution is not entirely tangible and 100 at the time the fact that you put up a video on youtube and i saw a little bit of innovation happening there around blockchain was just so fascinating to me and just giving these folks the you know yeah uh, visibility and thinking small as well thinking about just jumping in and making a difference in people's lives without it having to be a massive bureaucratic process is also something that's instructive yeah exactly like uh, the dev is totally right you know like people uh, tend to get lost they want to like go for like the pr move you know like so the intent from some people you know is not that that uh, especially for like big companies you know is not really like genuine on that aspect and you can see it with a lot of like uh, even with like the un initiative you know like the world food program all those things uh but yeah starting like locally helping like local groups because uh, you, you want to like also like give tools uh, to communities so they can continue and carry on the torch you know because you, you can help but if it's only for a fixed amount of time and you know you don't give them the tools uh, and don't accompany them you know like you know like that's gonna that's gonna be vain so uh, yeah Dave is totally right you know like if you can help a local community around and, and like we say often you know in infosec like giving back to the community and you know a lot of people like always want to help you know just like it's not always obvious about uh, how to uh, help because there's no framework for helping you know it's not like it's a fixed process and where you find a, a list of like okay those are like the issues even in some uh, cases you know you'll be talking with some groups you know they, they will not even be sure about uh, uh, what to help but sometimes even just giving them you know a platform and some visibility like you were saying for for the video you know like uh, it's kind of like giving a different perspective you know helping to uh counter the uh, far-right narrative uh, in the U.S. for some of those uh, places, you know, it's uh, always a, it's still a good thing. Uh, what is next for you? I notice you're doing Opcode online. Uh, we're in the midst of lockdown. I'm, I'm starting to worry about, like, you know, how does the future of conferences and gathering and in-person gathering affect, you know, communication and trusted relationships and newcomers getting into the industry who attend conferences and, you know, share a beer or have a cup of coffee with someone. I'm worried about this new virtual world putting up those roadblocks. I'm wondering, you think virtual events and, and the ability to do these things at the snap of a finger will help that? And talk a little bit about Opcode going online, what you're hoping to accomplish from it. Yeah, well, thanks again for uh, giving the keynote uh, the other day. Uh, something like, you know, like uh, you'll talk about uh, the cycles of innovation. Uh, it's very interesting because I think that's a topic which is more and more relevant. I do think it's going to remove a lot of barriers. So we did like two editions online now. We're going to do another uh, third edition next week i think it's like you know like remember like that i don't know if you have seen that article of people like sudanese have to work remotely because because they don't have a choice because of the pandemic and they start posting those screenshots of uh, uh, zoom you know uh, conf calls with like 20 people because they're trying to bring or they are working inside the meeting room and the office online and that 
it's not really how you can leverage like uh, those online uh, tools. So the people are probably going to have to rethink how they work. And I think it's going to be the same for conferences. In my opinion, every time I see, you know, a conference, we're going multi-track, multi-days. Uh, you know, I still think it's like too much of a copy-paste of like existing uh, format into an online format because, you know, there's, there's many things to be leveraging around. And funny enough, uh, I, I, I know you keep making fun of, of me every time for that, but gamers have been leveraging uh, those like online tools like pretty well uh, with like streaming. Even Microsoft launched like uh, their own platform like Mixer or like Amazon bought Twitch like long time ago. Uh, so they have been like uh, mastering that new like content format like pretty well. And even if you think about it, because a lot of us are really active on Twitter, right? But a lot of what is being said on Twitter at the end of the day still gets lost because there's so much activity on Twitter now. It's very difficult to uh, remove the noise. And even when something is interesting, you know, it kind of gets diluted. So usually you would... If you cannot write a blog post, you would tweet about it. But sometimes people like tweet stuff that are more interesting than some other people blog posts. And if you do a blog post, it may also like get lost, but people are consuming more like video type of uh, content now. Uh, so I think a lot of those things are going to be like changing. I don't think anyone should like, uh, you know, hesitate of uh, doing like uh, online content, but they're going to have to be uh, more relevant because Whenever you would go to a conference, usually you kind of go mainly, uh, I would say mostly for the social aspect, right? You're like catching up with your friends or doing some meetings. Whereas if it's an online conference, because you're removing all those things, well, you're going to have to remove the noise and focus on the content and make sure it's relevant. Otherwise, people are just going to like drop and uh, not pay uh, interest to it, uh, which is also good because if you want to bring like a speaker instead of like conferences, like two, three days, you have to arrive one day before, leave one day after. That's already like five days of your week gone. So that uh, that disappears too, which is uh, also pretty good. Same thing for attendees, you know, instead of having to block uh, like a full week to attend the conference, you will not have to. And I think it goes back to what we were saying before about uh, distributed teams and people leveraging like the fact there's many hubs and uh, not having to work uh, physically and to be physically in the same place. So I think people are going to start to relearn uh, how to use the internet and I think that's uh, we're going to see a lot of like changes in how people think and uh, work uh, in the next few months and hopefully we get a better internet out of it we're out of time Matt thank you so much for your time best of luck with everything uh, looking forward to uh, Upcode Online I know you're on a two week cadence now trying to hit it every two week with your new Twitch gamer mentality which <laughs> I, I know I make fun of you but I you know when, hey listen if you want to learn about the new communication tools look at the teenagers they're uh, doing very well on Instagram live yeah. oh my gosh on Instagram live there's like these new hip hop battles that are happening with 200,000 people attending and communicating and engaging and they're locked in their bedrooms and they're much more social than you and I yeah, so yeah, yeah. To, when you and you want to see uh, uh, you want to try engagement and see what works in engagement the most important thing to do is find a teenager and just watch and observe them yeah no, definitely have you seen they're doing like uh, concerts also now like uh, all those things you know like, oh wow they have found fascinating ways to use communication mediums beyond uh they're much faster to adapt to things uh, than we are so we are here struggling to figure out how do we cope in a world where we don't go to a physical conference anymore these kids never never been to a physical conference and they're conferencing more than you and i so it's just a, a mindset i guess 
yeah. it's just interesting to watch and observe for me and you know within this lockdown and within the new uh, a new world that evolves where we're all wearing masks and nobody's shaking hands anymore to watch uh, communication and engagement and this is my area of uh, my my work area so it's just all fascinating to me yeah definitely thank you matt we'll do it again i think you and i can part you and i can actually co-host a podcast because we talk a lot about a lot of uh, the same stuff and hopefully the sound is going to be good uh, this time so 